Welcome to K-Pop. I'm Jonathan Capehart. I'm trying to figure out how President Trump's foreign policy fits into America's traditional role in the world. So I had to talk to Tony Blinken, the Deputy Secretary of State for President Obama. And we talk about Russia, the European alliance, and American values in diplomacy. But we started off by trying to make some sense of Raqqa, Turkey, and the messy role of Michael Flynn. Tony Blinken, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. So you, you got to help me out here. Y- y'all worked for months to get a plan in place to arm the Kurdish rebels. And by y'all, I mean mm-hmm. the Obama administration, the national security team. And you guys worked really hard to get this plan in place to arm the Kurdish rebels, to take Raqqa from the Islamic State. Susan Rice, then, then the national security advisor, presented the plan to her successor, Michael Flynn. Mm-hmm. And citing sources, the Washington Post reported that Flynn said, quote, don't approve it, we'll make the decision. Why is that significant now? Well, two things. First, take a quick step back. Mm -hmm. The reason Raqqa is so important, liberating it, along with Mosul and Iraq, is this is the heart of the self-declared caliphate that the Islamic State has set up. And if we're able to take back both of these places then that caliphate will effectively be gone. And that's going to have profound implications for the Islamic State. Practical implications because they will no longer have a place for foreign fighters to go and congregate. They won't have resources to exploit, but also psychologically because what's attracting people to the proposition is the creation of an actual state. Once that's denied to them, I think the foundation that they're building everything on starts to collapse. That's why this is so important. So it's important to put that in context. Mm -hmm. We have moved inexorably to liberating both places, and that's a result of a very comprehensive strategy that President Obama put in place and implemented. And by the end of the administration, in December, we were at the point where the liberation of Mosul was underway in Iraq, and Raqqa itself had been surrounded, isolated, and we were now at the point of thinking about how do we go ahead and liberate it. And we'd been working on the ground with something called the Syrian Democratic Forces, and most of those forces are a combination of Arabs, but also Kurds. And the dominant group, actually, within the Syrian Democratic Forces is Kurdish. It's a Kurdish militia called the YPG. The Turks don't like the idea that we've been working mm-hmm. with this Kurdish militia because the reason Turkey's really engaged in Syria is less about Assad or the Islamic State and more about preventing the creation of a Kurdish state, a contiguous Kurdish area. Which has been long been one of the things they desperately want to avoid Exactly, exactly. And that goes all the way just for our listeners. Even in the first Gulf War, that was a big big deal, wasn't it? That's exactly right. Right. And so here we are at the point of liberating Raqqa, and we want to work, the U.S. military, the administration wants to work with this group, the SDF, including its Kurdish component, But we know that we have to arm them if they're going to do the job effectively because otherwise you're throwing them into an incredibly heavily defended city with suicide bombs and snipers and all sorts of things that the Islamic State has stood up and you have to give them the means to to do the job. So we presented a plan at the very end of the administration to President Obama to do exactly that, to liberate Raqqa, but that involved uh, supporting and arming uh, this group. And it's exactly what you said at that point. Uh, we heard that um, Mr. Flynn, then the presumptive national security advisor, had asked that we not decide. 
and uh, that we leave the decision to the next administration. Fair enough. Uh, that's a reasonable thing. But <laughs> what, is, um, what is questionable now is that we now know what we didn't know then, which is that uh, Mr. Flynn had very, very close ties to Turkey, uh, including, in effect, being on the payroll of someone who um, was clearly working um, on behalf of the interests of the Turkish government. So I can't tell you, sitting here today, whether the decision or the request, rather, that uh, we hold off on making this decision about arming the Kurds against the will of the Turks uh, was simply uh, something that uh, he wanted left in the normal course of business the next administration or because he was um, influenced by his affiliation with Turkey. And and this is what's so incredible to me. And maybe because, you know, we're sitting here in Washington that this is a big deal. But it would seem to me just sort of logically speaking that if you have a person who retroactively lets it be known that they were What's the what's the term of art that's used? A foreign agent, <laughs> <laughs> right? A foreign agent, like registered with, um, registered as a lobbyist for a foreign agent, a surrogate on the, a surrogate on the campaign on the transition team for national security, incoming national security advisor who doesn't tell anybody that he's he's this foreign agent for Turkey, and getting intelligence briefings. Why is this not? A bigger, a bigger scandal. And to my mind, it's almost as big or if not bigger than what we think might have been happening with mm. Russia. Yeah, I think two things are going on here. One, of course, is that Mr. Flynn was dismissed. So I think people see this as yesterday's news, uh, no longer relevant. Uh, I agree with you. It is relevant. We should get to the bottom of it. Now, to be fair, what I've seen reported is that uh, Mr. Flynn's lawyer said, no, actually, we went to the White House counsel or the presumptive White House counsel, because this was during the transition, and told them about this relationship and asked whether he should register as a foreign agent. And the response we got was, well, that's up to you. We're not going to tell you what to do. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's what's been reported. And let's say, it, it, okay, that's what's been reported. But given all your years in, in service and what you know about how things work in the White House, is that normal to say, well, it's up to you. You decide whether you're going to register as a foreign agent or not. Well, I would, I would think based on past experience, that you'd get a little bit more of a steer than that. Because anyone coming in uh, would want to make sure that no one could question their motives, <laughs> never mind their allegiances. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it, would, it should be the default of anyone coming in to do that. But it also should probably be the default of the lawyers from the White House to recommend that you do exactly that. That said, as a, as a legal matter, I think it's, it's true. The decision really was up to, uh, to Mr. Flynn. And so now we have a Secretary of State Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who strikes me as a curious figure. What do you, what do you make of this, this current Secretary of State? Well, look, I, I, I know Mr. Tillerson a little bit, Secretary Tillerson a little bit from his previous uh, job as running uh, ExxonMobil. He was an extremely successful executive running one of the biggest companies uh, in the world. Um, I had some dealings with him in that, in that capacity, and he's someone who uh, impressed me very favorably. And of course, bringing in someone from the business world uh, is not, not the normal course of business, but there's a, certainly an argument for it. I think what we've seen since is two things. One, he got off to a very good start. The first day he came to the department, he spoke to the entire uh, State Department uh, team, foreign service officers, civil servants, all gathered in the lobby of the building. And by all accounts, um, he made a good impression. Since then, though, he has been, um, well, uh, not very visible, both internally and certainly externally. Now, maybe that's by design, but here's the problem. If you're not 
at the most important meetings, whether they're at the White House or abroad. If you're not perceived to have influence, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you don't have influence. So, for example, we know that there have been a number of critical meetings with foreign leaders. The secretary has not been present. We know that a number of senior foreign leaders have come to Washington, and instead of seeing the Secretary of State, they've seen Jared Kushner, President's son-in-law. That begins to feed on itself to the point where, and these things are connected, and what you don't want to do is, uh, is lose that influence. Similarly, until very recently, the, the State Department, which used to hold daily press briefings, stopped doing it. This is re- usually important because it's the State Department's voice and a way of magnifying and amplifying that voice around the world mm-hmm. to explain our policies, to defend them as necessary. That voice was taken away, and that tends to undermine the influence of the department. So all of these things taken together, as well as, of course, the fact that the president put forth a budget (laughs) that proposes to cut the State Department by 37 percent, and there didn't seem to be much pushback from Mm -hmm. Secretary Tillerson. All of these things taken together suggest to folks around the world that he may not be in the room where it happens. That's not good for his influence. Now, maybe this is just a temporary thing. And um, he will assert himself. But here's the thing, Jonathan. Folks at the State Department desperately want him to succeed because his success is their success. All of these foreign policy professionals, their voice is heard through his voice. When that voice is powerful within the administration around the world, their voice is powerful. When it's muted, so is theirs. Yeah, speaking of muted, I mean, you said a, a lot in that answer. And for folks who might hear, oh, well, his influence might de- be diminished or um, his influence might not be as great. Talk about why influence is so important. And, I, and, and what makes me think of this is uh, you were a poli-sci major, mm-hmm. right? And so was I. Mm-hmm. And so we know from our classes that the Secretary of State usually is very close to the president. That's right. And is someone who can travel around the world and talk to world leaders, and the person sitting opposite them across the table knows that whatever the Secretary of State says is coming from the president. That's exactly right. Look, you, you put your finger on it. That's what they depend on. That's what they rely on. They want to know that the person they're speaking to actually speaks for the president. Now, in fairness to Secretary Tillerson, I think one of the problems up till now has been that it's not been clear what the policy is on any given issue. Well, right. So it's awful hard for the secretary or, for that matter, the State Department through its daily briefing to be able to speak intelligently to the policy when you don't know what it is. Initially, I think that's because the National Security Council was dysfunctional uh, under, under General Flynn. What normally is supposed to happen is that you get everyone into the White House Situation Room, all of the relevant cabinet secretaries, whether it's the State Department, Defense Department, Treasury, Energy, Uh, CIA, et cetera, you get them around the same table. They debate the policy, they decide the policy, and then they all speak the policy with one voice. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's not what was happening. My hope now is that with General McMaster, the new National Security Advisor, that that regular order starts to uh, become the norm. Absent that, what you see happening is all sorts of parallel structures going around the National Security Council process starting to take hold. So, Steve Bannon, the president's chief strategist, has something called the Strategic Initiatives Group that is trying to develop foreign policy around the National Security Council. Uh, Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law, has been taking all of these meetings, almost acting as a, as a de facto secretary of state. 
That's not regular order. That's not how you should be doing business. If it gets back to regular order, then I hope um, Secretary Tillerson can assert himself. So, uh, so what you're what it sounds like is chaos. So you've got the, the you've got the Bannon sphere, you've got the Kushner sphere, mm-hmm. and then you have the what should be the regular sphere, and that is the State Department mm-hmm. and the Secretary of State. Um, all competing with each other. So it sounds like the chaos that's in the West Wing that we have heard happening physically in the West Wing is now replicating itself into other agencies. Specifically, we're talking now the State Department. Mm -hmm. Let me bring you back to the the secretary sitting across from a a world leader, a a foreign leader, whether it's a president, prime minister, or, or foreign minister. How damaging is it for the person sitting across from the Secretary of State to feel that it's a waste of their time to be sitting with this guy because he doesn't he, he doesn't talk for the president, he doesn't talk to the president. Is it possible for Secretary Tillerson to, I guess, it be effective is not even the right word. It seems... Um, less than what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. It just seems like we, we have the most important cabinet secretary who is uh, the most powerless, it seems. No, that's exactly right. And it, no, it is a question of effectiveness. It is a question of uh, whether you're relevant. And of course, the secretary of state should be more than relevant. He or she should be the person <laughs> leading our diplomacy, policy, driving yes. policy. And certainly implementing it. And again, my hope is this does come back to regular order and that uh, his voice is elevated in the, in, in the process. But until that happens, look, what it really does is it undermines our, our diplomacy and the power of our diplomacy. And it's interesting. The first people to tell you how important diplomacy is to our national security are our military leaders, our generals, uh, the folks who are leading the Pentagon. Um, General Mattis, the secretary of defense, would be the very first person to say, Actually, what I really need is strong diplomacy. And he famously has said, you know, if you don't give the State Department what it needs, you better give me more to buy more ammunition because we're going to get into more fights if we don't manage to resolve something diplomatically. It matters. And one of the misconceptions I think that this administration seems to have is not understanding that diplomacy is national security. Mm -hmm. That's what they need to get to. And also, just from what you were saying about um, Secretary Mattis, General Mattis, you know, when we hear about military guys, and especially the way our current president talks about military guys, all they want to do is just get out there and shoot off guns and fight and go to war. And what everything that I've heard about um, Secretary Mattis from you now, from Derek Cholet, from the German Marshall Fund, who was here um, on the podcast last year, that he's a really good guy, a really good general, and has his head screwed on straight when it comes to the interplay of diplomacy and actual armed conflict. Yeah, well, I think you put it perfectly. And that's certainly been my experience with, uh, with Secretary Mattis. He's a very enlightened leader. And he understands that his job is, in the first instance, to try to prevent conflict and avoid getting us into one. But, of course, if we do, he's going to make sure that we have what we need to win. Mm -hmm. But he's understood for a long time that, for him, really, the pointed edge of the spear is diplomacy. Uh, That's the best means to prevent conflict. And it's also the best means to amplify what um, he's doing. For example, we now have, when it comes to dealing with the Islamic State, a coalition of 65 countries and a couple of international organizations. (laughs) That coalition was put together through painstaking diplomacy, and it dramatically amplifies uh, the ability of our military to get the job done. Um, That's the essence of diplomacy, and it's the essence of 
the marriage of diplomacy with our uh, defense and military policy. So in Mattis, you have someone who absolutely gets it. Uh, and I hope we'll continue to be a strong defender of that proposition within the administration. I was trying to think of questions about President Trump's foreign policy that I could ask you. And then it, it just occurred to me, I don't even know what his foreign policy mm-hmm. is. You are steeped in this. Can you articulate what President Trump's foreign policy is, or at least his foreign policy philosophy is? So there are two different questions here. One, I don't think anyone at this point can really tell you what the policy is for any given issue. And again, in fairness, you know, there's a process that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago centered on the National Security Council, and the responsibility is to develop the policies. Again, to get everyone in the same room, to debate them, to decide them, and then to implement them. And I think that's starting to happen by accounts that I'm, that I'm hearing, and that's a very good thing, but it wasn't happening uh, in the first uh, month or so of the administration. But then there's the question of what's the larger philosophy? I can guess at it. It hasn't really been enunciated, and most administrations put out a national security strategy. Hopefully this administration will too, that sort of puts it all in, into one place. But here's my concern. There is a, a logical construct to what we hear the president talk about. That is that the United States is overextended, that our global engagement is much more of a burden than a benefit, that it entangles us in the problems of others. It results in a bunch of free riders who are taking advantage of our strength and our resources, um, and it diverts resources from dealing with problems at home. And so there may be an instinct there to pull back. Let's go back to this spheres of influence world where we let Russia do what it wants in its part of the world. Maybe we even let the Chinese do what they want to do in their part. If all of them help us in dealing with terrorism, which is the one problem he seems to, to care about, great. But otherwise, let them have at it. We've had experience with that kind of world uh, throughout the Cold War. And when a sphere of influence arose in Eastern and Central Europe, which was dominated by the Soviet Union, basically uh, darkness descended on that part of the world in terms of our basic values. And at the same time, it wasn't a peaceful world. We were in tension, uh, in conflict. If we go back to that kind of spheres of influence thinking, uh, not only will we give short shrift to our values, we'll also, I think, set up actually a lot of tension and a lot of conflict because what we do know is that countries dominant in a sphere of influence are never satisfied. They always want more. That leads to conflict. And then within the sphere of influence, there are constant cycles of uh, rebellion and repression, and that tends to draw us into conflict. So I can give a logical construct to what I think President Trump may be thinking, but I can also say that that construct would be a mistake in terms of American interests. And, and listening to you speak about that made me think of Russia, the president, Putin, and expanding the sphere of influence. And what does that mean for America going forward, not just in terms of, mm-hmm. our, our, of our influence around the world, but what does it mean for, I guess, who we are and where we're going? Well, I think that really is the question of the moment. In many ways, the $64,000 question. Take Ukraine, just quickly for an example. Um, you know, a lot of Americans will say, why, why should we even care about this? It's far away. It's not really a strategic interest. We don't have a deep trade or investment relationship uh, with Ukraine. Why does it matter? And the reason it matters and the reason we felt so strongly about it in the previous administration is because Russia is challenging basic principles of the so-called liberal international order. And these are principles that matter, principles like we can't allow one country to change the borders of another by force. 
Uh, we can't allow one country to be able to dictate to the people of another <laughs> what its uh, policies will be, what alliances it's allowed to join, what clubs it's allowed to be a part of. Because if we go down that road, that is a recipe uh, for chaos going forward. So that's in many ways why, why Ukraine matters. It's a matter of upholding these basic rules, these basic norms that we've stood for for more than 70 years. So what about Crimea? I mean, he was able to to annex Crimea with with no seeming consequence or retaliation, or were the sanctions that were imp- uh, applied, was that enough, do you well, think? Well, I think a lot of things happened. Uh, and, and, you know, when you look at this strategically, as opposed to tactically, I think a different picture emerges. Tactically, President Putin looks very strong. He acts decisively. He acts with strength. He seized Crimea. Then he intervened in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass, backing these separatists, sending Russian forces in, claiming he he wasn't, uh, but he did. But strategically, it's a bit of a different proposition. When you think about it, in many ways, Putin has actually precipitated many things that he was actually trying to prevent. Russian influence in most of Ukraine is probably lost for generations. The Russians are detested by the majority of Ukrainians as a result of their intervention in Crimea and then in eastern Ukraine. NATO is now, as a result of the intervention, more energized than it's been uh, in many years, with more countries stepping up, willing to do more. And NATO's presence close to Russia uh, is greater than it's ever been, which is something that Putin tried to prevent. Energy security, which has been the one way Russia's really had a grip on Europe. Europeans are doing more to create uh, much greater independence uh, from Russia. There's still a lot of work to be done, but they're moving in that direction. And, of course, the Russian economy has taken a real hit as a result of sanctions. Now, low oil prices were the primary driver of that. Bad economic policy was a big driver. But the sanctions, which were very carefully designed to target leading industries, particularly the energy sector, um, have had a real impact. And here again, this is American diplomacy, painstaking diplomacy to keep the Europeans on board month after month after month. And that was President Obama. That was Secretary Kerry. That was diplomacy. Without U.S. leadership, doesn't NATO fall apart? A lot of things fall apart uh, because uh, the world is not self-organizing. And if we're not doing the organizing, either it doesn't happen or someone else is doing it and probably in a way that doesn't fully reflect our own interests or values. And when it comes to NATO, we have been and we remain the driving force, driving force in getting other countries to step up and do what they need to do, uh, the driving force in modernization. But it's not a gift. It's not something that we're doing out of the, the goodness of our hearts. It helps us. It magnifies everything we can do. We get partners to pick up some of the burden. We get basing rights. We get overflight rights. We get folks who are trained uh, in the same military doctrine that we are, and they can work together with us. If we didn't have NATO, every time a crisis took place, we'd have to start inventing it from scratch. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. We were at um, at an event the other night, Nick and I, and there were a lot of ambassadors mm-hmm. there. And so I just took it as an opportunity to just sort of ask them about, you know, the new administration. Have they been talking to anybody? Have they seen the secretary? And one ambassador said something that truly poetic in in what she had to say, but also sad. And I'm going to read to you what this person Mm -hmm. said. America has lost the one weapon it has, the power to inspire. Mm -hmm. It breaks my heart. Yeah. Look, as someone who uh, has been in one way or another in diplomacy for, for 24 years, um, I think it's a, it's a profound statement and one that we really need to, uh, to reckon with. We have the 
greatest, strongest, most effective military in the world. And that's not going away. And it's an incredibly important tool and one that gives us a tremendous amount of influence and leverage around the world. I think what's even more powerful is exactly what this ambassador referred to. It's the ability to inspire, not to coerce people to work in the same direction, but to inspire them to do so through our values, through the way we go about doing things. And if we lose that, um, we're really tying uh, one hand, if not more, behind our backs uh, everywhere we go around the world. Look, here's the experience I had. You know, traveling around the world as a, as a diplomat, I go to places where our policies might be in question, where we had profound d- disagreements on one issue or another. But the one constant was a powerful attraction to American values, to American education, to science, to technology, to entrepreneurship, um, and to culture. And in many ways, these constants were really the glue um, that, uh, that kept things together, even when we were disputing particular issues or particular uh, policies. If we lose that, we really lose what gives us a unique edge. Look, I also hope that uh, the administration begins to recognize reality. Folks who come in with strong ideologies often run into the brick wall of reality from, from the left or the right. You have in this administration, apparently, a strong ethno-nationalist ideology that Mr. Bannon uh, and others are putting forward. That's at the heart of, it seems, how the administration purports to, uh, to operate uh, around the world. And it's basically undermining 70 years of American-led uh, internationalism for an open, connected world. That's not the direction they're heading. Uh, instead, we see the administration playing off understandable fears that people have that are driven by the incredible rapid pace of technological change, the unbridled flow of information, the sense of an erosion of borders. All of that's created a sense of chaos and confusion and vulnerability among uh, many Americans. This administration has turned our traditional openness into weakness. That's what they're, that's what they're selling. And in that context, it's very easy to play on people's concerns that a refugee is a threat to your security, an immigrant's a threat to your identity, a trade deal is a threat to your job, and American engagement around the world is just weighing us down and entangling us in other people's problems. But I think as the administration goes forward, it will find that virtually all of the big things that we're doing or trying to do or need to do require us working closely with others and being engaged as the organizer. If it's an epidemic, if it's a cyber attack, if it's a terrorist network, uh, if it's climate change, you name it, we can't do it alone. And our ability to attract others in common cause is one of our greatest strengths. One of the things listeners probably don't know is that in the famous photo in the Situation Room during the raid that got Osama bin Laden, everyone's focused on Hillary Clinton (laughs) and her hand over her mouth. And of course, eyes gravitate towards uh, the president. But you were also there. Mm. What exactly were you guys looking at on that screen? That's what I really really want to know. Well, two things. You know, I'm in the background of that photo kind of leaning in. And uh, about a week or two after um, we um, managed to to get bin Laden, Admiral Mike Mullen, who was then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was on David Letterman. And Letterman pulls up the photograph, blows it up on the screen, and zeroes in on me in the background and says, who is that guy? He obviously doesn't belong there. Did he just walk in off the White House tour? <laughs> so uh, that, uh, that quickly brought me de- back down to earth. Um, 
you know, there's there's been lots of talk about what we were or weren't looking at, and it was not one of these things that you'd see on TV, which is a clear picture of what was actually going on on the ground. It was much more distant than that, and much more removed um, from from much, uh, in effect, much higher up. But what we had were those um, those images, and then we had coming in over um, over a microphone over the audio uh, was a kind of real time narration by the folks uh, leading the operation that they were feeding to, uh, to the Pentagon and to the uh, CIA. So this was a, a moment of just extraordinary tension, uh, waiting to see if, first of all, <laughs> if bin Laden was even there. Mm-hmm. Because remember, at best, our folks thought that it was 50-50. The president made the decision to go with this mission without any absolutely confirming evidence that bin Laden was actually present. Um, and so that was the first thing. And then, of course, uh, as we're there and the operation is going forward and we hear that a helicopter is down, that sent shivers through everyone's spines. And it flashbacks to what had happened when uh, President Carter sent forces to try to get the uh, hostages from, mm-hmm. from Iran. So there's just this incredible sense of tension. And you're listening to the narration of the mission in real time. You're seeing things, but it's a little bit hard to make total sense of them because, again, it's at a, at a great distance. It's not granular. And what is happening over the course of 30 or 45 minutes seems like it's taking hours, days, and more. And then when it finally was over and we got the, the, the word that bin Laden was in fact there and had been brought to justice, there wasn't any sense of triumph or, you know, <laughs> high fives. It was just a profound sense of relief and a feeling that um, we had done right. Uh, by the American people and by justice. You know, when it, you and I, we know each other, our spouses know each mm-hmm. other, work together, and so you've always struck me as this really nice guy, this down-to-earth, so approachable guy. And so, of course, we're gonna, doing this interview, and I go and I do my research and look at foreign policy stuff and trying to look at things. And then I come across this profile that the Washington Post did uh, of you. And I learned a whole lot of stuff I didn't know, really incredible, great, great things about um, your life, how you grew up, you you lived in Paris, you lived in New York, your dad was a venture capitalist, your mom um, was an artist, Um, your stepfather is a lawyer and Holocaust survivor, and through these worlds, you've led this incre- incre- absolutely incredible life. Um, you played in a jazz band in Paris? It's actually more of a rock band, I think. Oh, a rock I, I band? Did, I didn't have the chops to play jazz. <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm a big Auntie Mame fan. I don't know if you've seen Auntie mm. Mame. But I kept thinking, holy smokes, Tony Blanket is Patrick Dennis. Like He's literally Patrick <laughs> Dennis. <laughs> Um, but I say all that to say, having led this extraordinary, extraordinary life already, um, you are so down to earth and approachable. Is that something that your your parents just sort of drilled into you? Is like this is this is our life, but this is this is the way to be. Well, you're really kind to say that, but um, I guess I'd say two things. But maybe most important is this. You know, I think we're all the product to some extent and sometimes to a great extent of um, our families and of our family stories. And in a way, in my case, this moment especially resonates because of those stories. Mm-hmm. Unless, we were, uh, unless we're Native American, we're all immigrants to this country. 
And in my case, I have my closest family members, all of whom were either immigrants or refugees uh, in one way or another. My father's father came here fleeing a pogrom uh, in uh, what is now uh, Russia, or actually now Ukraine, technically, um, at the turn of the last century. And he was embraced and built a life in the United States, argued before the Supreme Court, sent three sons to Ivy League schools, but from nothing. But he came through Ellis Island and he was embraced. My stepmother was Hungarian-born. She literally, in the dead of night, as a young girl with her mother, fled the communists, got out by train, had a sham, her mother had a sham marriage to someone. She, too, was embraced by the United States, came here, built a great life, and wound up giving back uh, to refugees over the course of 20 or 30 years. And then finally, my stepfather, you alluded to. He was one of 900 children in his school in Bialystok, Poland, uh, before the Second World War. He's the only one to have survived. Mm. And his entire immediate family, mother, father, sister, were, were wiped out. He spent four years in the concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek, you name it. At the very end of the war, he was on a death march out of one of the camps. And he and a few others made a run for it in the Bavarian forest. And somehow they managed to survive the gunfire from the German troops. They hid out in the woods. And a day or two later, he heard a rumbling sound. And he looked out, and instead of seeing the dreaded swastika, he saw a five-pointed white star on a tank. And he ran for the tank into this clearing, which was insane, but he did. And the hatch of the tank opened, and a very large African-American GI looked down at him. And he got down on his knees and said the only three words in English that he knew and that his mother had taught him, God bless America. And the GI pulled him into the tank, pulled him into freedom, pulled him into the United States. That, to me, is who we are. That, to me, is what we stand for. That is the beauty and power of the United States across the world. Those are the stories I grew up with. Those are the stories that motivated me to try to play a small part in diplomacy and public service. Tony Blinken, former Deputy Secretary of State and former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Barack Obama. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 